Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to our favorite night of the week, Saturday night, um, engaging with Surah Al-Nisa, day 10. Amazing that we've been um, working on this for now, what, two, two and a half months, which is incredible. Time goes by so quickly. I cannot believe we're already at the end of March on the doorstep of Ramadan. Um, and you know, even though this was spring break at UCLA, um, the work doesn't stop here. We had the amazing Dispelling Myths uh, Q&A last Sunday. It was not even a week ago, but it feels like it's been a while, <laughs> but it was an incredible session, really stunning. Um, I think that um, the questions that we covered uh, were really important, and I think the answers were incredibly surprising, transparent empowering. Um, I know that, um, you know, we, we had a really beautiful group of people. Um, it was, um, you know, it was one of these things that, I mean, for me as the moderator, I felt it was really blessed. You know, like a lot of times when you're moderating these things, you're, you're really just hoping that things go well and you're trying to coordinate a little bit behind the scenes, like, okay, who's asking the, the next question? Where's the conversation going? Okay, what should we talk about? You know, where do we go? Um, and alhamdulillah, it just worked out very beautifully, and I think the response um, back from people was very, very positive. Um, Sheikh sh shared some really powerful stories that um, were just like mic drop moments, and so if you haven't had a chance to watch it, um, I know it's long, but it's definitely worth it. It's very clarifying um, on a lot of really important issues. Um, and more importantly, if you know someone who has been traumatized um, or abused or you know, everyone knows someone at this point, you know, and everyone has a lot of misconceptions about what Islamic law has to say. Um, what, you know, Islamic law has been weaponized against a lot of victims. This was a really important conversation um, for people to hear, and um, alhamdulillah, we actually have in the works a part two, because, you know, you can't, this was a really great broad brush, um, you know, um, addressing kind of the bigger issues, but there's still so much that we could talk about, um, a lot of ways that people are suffering, um, and we had some really nice conversations afterwards that really highlighted that there are other things we want to cover. So inshallah, um, we're, we're working on that, and you know, I'll announce more um, as we go. Um, also, we had an incredible khutbah once again. I don't know, this is like, 10 in a row, I don't know, <laughs> um, but you absolutely have to watch it. And I think that one of the, the really powerful things about the khutbah is just that, once again, you know, Sheikh has a way of pointing things out that are commonsensical. They're like things that are hidden in plain sight. And once someone points them out and you go, oh my God, that's actually, that's amazing. Um, they're they're life transforming. And yesterday's had to do with an analogy that we're all really, um, you know, the Quran was sent as a book to prepare us for a test, and we're all in this test, and the results of the test will not be announced until the test is over, but oftentimes we find ways to distract ourselves or to convince ourselves that we're actually not in a test. And he says so much about that that is just really, um, it, it just touches you at the core, and it makes you think really carefully um, about things that are, about what is important. Um, and, you know, we also today, right um, before we came here with the halakha, um, the sheikh gave a really important keynote speech um, to a group of um, young lawyers um, or wannabe lawyers, <laughs> aspiring lawyers. It was the National um, Muslim Law Student Association, and it was the keynote. Um, we, you know, I, I always try to record everything, so I actually already recorded it and already uploaded it. So. You know, if you were not part of that or had no idea this was happening, um, it's there for, for you to watch. And it was extremely powerful because, you know, it's someone who 
was speaking, you know, Sheikh was a pioneer in the legal field in America. So when he was in law school, he was the only Muslim. And he told a story about how he used to pray in the library and people were not used to seeing Muslims praying. They didn't know what was happening and thought something was wrong. So they would often interrupt him. Um, and to the point where he created a sign that said, Muslim in, in prayer, please do not disturb. And he'd wear that. So people got an idea. And he shared some amazing stories about what it was like to be the only Muslim in an American law school. Um, and then from there, his 30-year career as a law professor and what, you know, what it's like to be um, a Muslim in this day and age and also be training to be a lawyer where you actually have the means now to address power in our country and what that calls for in terms of responsibility. So it was a really important, um, brilliant um, talk that, you know, everyone should should watch. And, um, you know, it's, it's again, like... Um, Amazing, like when you think, okay, 30 years ago was when, you know, even before I, I knew Sheikh, he was, you know, this law, this pioneering law student, and so much has happened. Um, we, f we forgot in the midst of all of our work that today is our 27th wedding anniversary. So <laughs> it's like, you know, um, one of these things where um, you just, you forget, and then, you know, of course we think back, like, oh my gosh, 27 years ago, it feels like a blink of an eye. And I thought, you know, the only thing I actually really wanted to do for our anniversary was call um, call our the 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 person who officiated and who was my wedding, um, Professor uh, Hossein Madarsi, and he was someone who officiated our wedding, and so we left him a voicemail. But you know, it's like when in your mind's eye, when you remember things that are so dear to you, you can still play them in your mind. But 27 years is a long time, you know and so much has happened, but it's just a reminder that, um, you know, things happen, life goes by very quickly, and, um, you know, uh, so alhamdulillah, I feel like we've had a very meaningful journey, and I, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, honestly, on our anniversary night than sitting through a holocaust. So I've said that, I've, I've, I think my birthday was also fell on a Saturday this year, and it's like, again, you know, these are, these are for me really special times. Poor Sheikh is working, so <laughs> anyway, um, but happy to share our anniversary with all of you. So anyway, um, you know, there's just, there's so much, um, you know, important work to be done. And I honestly, like, I think even seeing, like, the reaction, it's an amazing thing to watch um, people who are just starting on this law journey listen to someone like Sheikh, who is coming at it from a perspective of experience, but also now it's like, okay, I've done all of that stuff where I wanted to you know, be an aspiring lawyer and, and all of this, but now you, you bring into it what we're talking about here, which is the Quran and what's really meaningful, you know, how you should be thinking about, you know, your role as a Muslim lawyer, because at that age, you know, oftentimes you're just thinking about how you get a good job, how do you make money, how do you, you know, um, become partner, you know, how do you get into a good law school? It's all very, you know, either technical or very, like, um, material and, you know, um, and so you drop in someone to come in and tell you, hey, you know, when you're thinking about being a lawyer, you should think about what's happening with the Uyghurs, with, you know, how you can use your power to help, you know, disempowered people, Rohingyas, Palestinians, you know, and it's almost like you're speaking a foreign language. Um, but I hope that, I mean, I, I saw some of the faces. I feel like some of the people really responded to what he was saying. But, you know, it's like if you're a Muslim and a lawyer, okay, is it a label or is it more than that? And I think that that was the power of that talk because, you know, there's a lot going on. Obviously, Muslims are in such a bad place and we we need to um, you know rise up and um, and claim that our rights and our power 
in this world. So anyway, um, it, was a really, it was a really important talk. So even if you're not a lawyer, again, I would really highly recommend it because there's a lot of learning there. So anyway, back to the Quran. Alhamdulillah, I'm so excited for another evening, um, day 10, and we'll see how many more days we'll spend with Surah Al-Nisa, but every day is just a blessing. Alhamdulillah, thank you for being with us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa taba bi hasanin ila yawmiddin. Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa hlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya rabbil alameen. So, inshallah, we return to the the open book I mean, it is truly, um, I mean, I guess it didn't dawn on me how how apt this analogy is until after I gave the khutbah, uh, that we are really sitting in an exam that for us seems like a long exam because our lifespans, but you know, a dog's lifespan would seem like a lifetime. An ant's lifespan would seem like a lifetime. A bird's lifespan would seem like a lifetime. It just depends on how you experience time, right? And you're sitting in an exam, and you're, 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 the Quran is, is, is it. It is, it is the vehicle, the one, the one instrumentality that Allah allows you is in this exam that can help you pass or fail. Um, and th this again underscores how important it is to to understand God's speech in its totality and to fully absorb each surah and how it fits within the overall totality of the Quranic message. Because all is necessary for passing the exam. So I guess where we left off is The, the, the point at which Surat al-Nisa deals with another um, eventuality in the living issues of the Medinian community. And we notice again that The, the response, while it is to um, a living problem, the, the problem of getting people to understand the role of Islam 
the role of reconciliation. That if you respond to shuh al-anfus, that if you respond to the way that your nafs is prone to look only at its own self-interest, to only consider what makes it, what, you know, increases its utility. Um, but that's not ihsan, and that's not taqwa. And that ihsan and taqwa demand that you get beyond the nafs, that it is not as simple as saying, well, you know, I, I am tired of my spouse, it's time for a change, just go for it. Um, because Allah addresses us as moral agents. Now, recall that one of the, this is both in Judaism and Islam, but in Islam even far more than Judaism, that because you don't have the logic of your, of, um, what is the, the, the word I'm looking for? The, the idea that uh, there is a medium or a middle agent that will come and absolve you of responsibility as exists in Christianity and exists in, in Romanized Christianity, which became the universal Christianity after the first four centuries. Um, so you notice that the Quranic discourse, its power can only be properly understood when you appreciate that it is speaking morality to people capable of understanding moral agency. Because if Allah is telling us that that watch out for selfishness. Selfishness is a problem. And when Allah tells us, it sort of flags the issue of ihsan and taqwa for us. And Allah flags the issue of adl and the 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 challenge of achieving adl, of, of aspiring and pursuing justice. Unless you have active moral agents who take their moral agency very seriously, this Quranic discourse would become, in legal terms, simple dicta. In dicta, in American law, dicta is sort of things that courts say in an opinion that, that is not material to the actual judgment. So it's not really binding because it is not really law. It's, yes, it's uttered by a court, it's said by a court, but a court is free to renegotiate what it said as dicta later on. It can say, 
I changed my mind. It can say, I didn't really mean what I said. It can say, this was not relevant to the, to the precedent that I decided, so it's not important. But the logic of dicta is very dangerous when it comes to the Quran. Because this is not the way Allah speaks to human beings. But if you, if you forget your moral agency, if you absolve yourself from having to think about justice, about islah, about taqwa, and what they would demand, which is in, in many ways, when, when Surah An-Nisa comes, and look at the, the only specific thing that Surah An-Nisa tells us is inheritance shares. But even the inheritance shares, it is responding to actual problems leveraging empowerment, but throughout Surah An-Nisa, time and time again, it, it sort of underscores the, 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 the moral project, the ethical project itself, that if you want to be closer to Allah, and as we will see, if you want to avoid the follies of those who came before you, In, in, in theological terms, then take the project of take the project of the sunnah of Allah, following Allah's sunnah in creation. And as we said, Allah's sunnah is the values that we see embedded in the very idea of creation itself. So justice, you are not free to say justice is not important because then you are contravening Allah's sunnah. Justice was embedded in the very logic of creation as being something that is good and desirable and beautiful. You are not free to say mercy is not important, rahmah is not important, or ihsan is not important, because all of that is part of Allah's sunnah in creation. And what Surah An-Nisa repeatedly does is that it tells us here are specific legal resolutions and he, but far more important than just a, is to get you to reflect as to why these legal reforms became necessary in the first place and to get you to think as to why you resist legal reforms as to why you resist the empowerment of the disempowered why do you resist giving people a the rights that are due to them. Okay. So as I said last halakha, that when Allah, for instance, comments that you are not going to be able to achieve justice, so be very careful that you don't end up 
forcing a woman, even if you entered into a polygamous marriage, as the Quran itself says, to take care of orphans. But be very careful that that you don't that you don't leave her as a muallaqa. Well, anyone pretending to understand what that means is engaging in folly unless they first study what that social cultural institution was. And here what I mean institution means a living experience. What the living experience of ta'aliq or al-nisa al-mu'allaqat was historically. And so when, when, when Allah says, don't replicate that institution, don't recreate it, it is just common sense that then, okay, well, what was that institution? What was that about? What was leaving a woman as a mu'allaqa about? And at a minimum, the thing that strikes you about the institution of al-mu'allaqat is that they were disempowered women. Put bluntly, they were women without a choice. So it doesn't take a genius to think, well, if we really are listening very carefully to the Quranic morality, it is not morally acceptable to place women in a situation where they are they feel victimized by circumstance and they have no recourse. And then when Allah underscores this and tells us, وَإِن تَصْلِحُوا وَتَطَّقُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا If you want ghufran and rahmah, if you want forgiveness and mercy, and Every word matters because if you if you say I don't care, I'm just going to indulge in whatever. Which this is what quite often in in polygamous marriages all over the Muslim world exactly what happens. It, it, someone ends up. I'm not saying in every situation, but in many situations. Someone ends up feeling that they really have no choice. Someone ends up feeling like, well, what can I do? I have to accept the situation because if I don't, there, the consequences will be far worse. But what you've done is that you've taken an action which... expunges Allah's forgiveness and mercy from your realm. That's a very scary thing. 
if you want anything in your marriage, it's precisely forgiveness and mercy. No marriage will survive, will live without forgiveness and mercy. You know, love goes up and down. But that feeling of tarahum, of, 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 of true compassion between partners is something that bonds you and keeps you, allows you to persevere through the, all the ups and downs. And no marriage will survive without Allah blessing your hearts with the true blessing of forgiveness that you're able to forgive yourself because you're human and you're going to end up doing a lot of things that are stupid and silly and, and, and worse in a marriage. And the na'mah of forgiveness I underscored this in the last halaqa and I'm underscoring it again because this is not normally the way that we approach the Quran. We 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 read as if it's dicta. Yeah, yeah, okay, just get us give us the rule. It's like the way that we approach inheritance laws or the way that we approach so many it's just okay, just give us a positive law and let's forget all the 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 you know the the it's it's as if we we deal with you know uh, uh, with all the rest as if it's like decoration around the positive law yeah yeah god is talking about mercy and and justice and islah and again okay let's move, just move on how amazingly blasphemous to do that but we do it all the time all the time we just pass over what Allah tells us about basic moral injunctions that in fact are the foundations of the law but instead we just sort of okay so at this point, one, one last thing, because I forgot to say this in uh, last halakha. So notice that in 1.30, when Allah reminds us, وَإِنْ يَتَفَرَّقَ يُغْنِي اللَّهُ كُلٌّ مِنْ سَعَتِهِ That That verse, which comes and says, well, you know, if you end up separating, then rely on Allah. The way that I understand, because you you'd say, okay, so we we get we we get why Allah, hopefully, we get why Allah talks about, you know. T- t- Strive towards Islah. Remember that 
sulh is always better. Try to avoid breaking up relationships. It's a, but why does then Allah come and say, well, if you end up separating, then inshallah, God will take care of you. The natural meaning, although again, it, it is not what you find in tafsir, the text of tafsir, is that we are given sort of we are given a moral reminder and the moral reminder is that we must avoid situations of injustice and we much avoid much must avoid situations of at-ta'liq or al-mu'allaqa the disempowered woman who has no choice It is as if Allah is saying, if you end up confronted with a situation in which, in fact, you become a mu'allaqa, a woman who, and the mu'allaqa, as I, as I said, it was, it was, it was a, 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 a um, an institution that was full of indignity. Any woman did not want, and, and women would deny, even if they experienced, even if they were in fact a mu'allaqa, they would hide it. They wouldn't, it was considered dishonorable, shameful, to, to, to be a woman stuck like that. So it is like saying, you know, don't accept indignity for yourself if you end up in a situation where you cannot escape the, and, and if, if you end up in a situation that is lacking dignity, then remember that normally you end up in a situation that is not dignified because you lack financial means. So it's Allah coming in and reminding you and say, don't accept that for yourself. If money is the reason that you're accepting this indignity, then remember, that there is a God who decides the issues of risk. I, I, I hope the point got across, got across is that, you know, so, because if the, oh, if the excuses will, you know, I, I, I just have to accept it because, it, but there is, to, to, to remind you that you shouldn't compromise your dignity and honor for financial reasons.
Okay. So then at this point, Surat al Nisa will switch, like there's a new movement in the Surah, right? And the new movement is to go back and to talk about those who were before us. And you might wonder, as many have in Islamic history, well, why, why do we, we, we understand that there, there is the historical challenge of the of, of those who who were not on board. There is the historical challenge of hypocrisy. There is the historical challenge of those who drag their feet, etc., etc. But why does Surah An-Nisa come back as often the Quran does and? once again remind us of those before us and its trajectory of history. The answer is in 133. In Yasha Yudhibkum we will notice that Surah An-Nisa at this point will repeat it will repeat the form of Ya Ayyuhannas. It starts speaking to humanity at large. And it reminds humanity that in many ways there is nothing new under the sun. Allah has had the same basic message. The message that would enable human beings to pass the test of life. Muhammad is a continuation in the in a link of in, in a coherent, cohesive link, a message that affirms itself again and again. And notice that this historical rootedness for the first centuries of Islam was very liberating for Muslims because it allowed them to think of wisdom and learning as a human heritage. What, what empowered Muslims to say, well, let's search for wisdom, even if it is found in Persia, or it's found among Greeks, or it's found with this, this, this Quranic openness to that morality is morality. 
ethical norms are ethical norms. So don't be scared of learning about ethical norms that were revealed through the wisdom of human beings before Islam. But the second element was Surah Al-Baqarah had underscored for us is that Muslims pay careful attention because the likelihood if you fail in this project it will be because of the same mistakes that were repeated in other words human beings repeat the same fallacies over and over again it is it's like a broken record it is the same element of human be- the, 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 the same arrogance the same resistance the, 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 the same lack of humility the same egoism the same uh, tendency to lose sight of the, the divine norms as sunnah and to become obsessed with the technicalities of law and to think that God is about just the discharging of these technical laws and the same di- the same dynamics and the bottom line of it as Allah has already told us in Surah Al-Baqarah like Allah has now b- brought Muslims to replace those before them As Surah An-Nisa has underscored, this is not a status competition, and Allah could in turn replace you as well. So, وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَقَدْ وَصَّيْنَا الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ وَإِيَّاكُمْ أَنِ اتَّقُوا اللَّهِ So, here the message is, we, for God are the heavens and earth, and this well, that message of taqwa law of, of of having a intimate direct relationship with Allah where you are listening carefully to what Allah is telling you about how to get to the other shore to succeed in in your moral journey is something that Allah has sent to people before you. وَإِن تَكْفُرُوا فَإِنَّ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَنِيًّا حَمِيدًا So, and again, the reminder that if you think that any of this is somehow enriching for Allah or adds anything to Allah, you're absolutely wrong. All of this, the entire journey all the laws, all the morality is for you, to your benefit. It, this is a, a philosophical anchoring of our attitude towards the commandments themselves, as, as we will see in a second. Okay. And then, And again, underscoring that 
you exist in Allah's ownership, in what Allah owns. And you will not find a better guide or a better ally to anchor you in the past than Allah. إِنْ يَشَأْ يُتْهِبْكُمْ أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ وَيَأْتِي بِآخَرِينَ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى ذَلِكَ قَدِيرًا If Allah wanted to replace humanity, all of it, it would be the simplest thing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَمَنْ كَانَ يُرِيدُ ثَوَابَ الدُّنْيَا فَعِنْدَ اللَّهِ ثَوَابُ الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ this is one of these ayat that I say that we often read as dictum. So, if, if what you are thinking of is success on this earth, then you should be mindful of the fact that whether success on this earth or the hereafter, that is all within that is Allah's jurisdiction because the, te- the the temptation as Allah knows as has happened with people before us is to do exactly what people often do with religion is to think well you know religion is about the hereafter but this dunya is is our business it is to sort of it, bracket religion in ready-made categories on the margins of life on earth. And this is precisely why then Allah comes and says it's, it, it is, you want to understand how religion is at the heart of life and the affairs of this dunya and the hereafter? As Allah said in 134, whoever wants success on this earth, both here now and hereafter is with Allah. That is the secret. You want to know how so? That's answered in 135. more clearly can Allah make this point when Allah comes and says those of you who believe kunu qawamina bil qist qaim bil qist is the same word of qiyama qiyama is to serve something to serve something diligently and deliberately. So, qawwamina bil qist means you are constantly in the service of qist. You are constantly in the service of justice. 
but you are constantly in the service of justice as a way of bearing witness for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there, the justice, bearing witness for Allah through the establishment of justice is the heart of dunya and akhirah, is at the very core. Even if it is against yourself or your parents or those who are close, close to you. Now, here, pause. Subhanallah, it's like uh, many years ago when I started you when I when I used the the expression the authoritative and authoritarian, and suddenly a lot of Muslims started talking about the authoritative and authoritarian in Islamic tradition as if it's it was always there, and then later on I started using the term epistemology, and now everyone talks about epistemology as if it's always there. So. Here is another about epistemology and the like. To bear witness for Allah, to establish justice, even if it is against yourself and your parents or your family, requires a remarkable epistemological move. In our modern age, we call this epistemology objectivity. It is impossible to testify against the self or against your loved ones if you don't at least aspire for objectivity. I don't know if anyone has written the history of objectivity. I mean, it's a constant theme in philosophy, but like, I, I like the title, The History of Objectivity. There probably is a book out there, The History of Objectivity already, but because it's a constant theme in philosophy. But the very idea of objectivity is a fairly modern concept. It blows my mind that the Quran centuries before, I mean, people, for many, for a long time, human beings thought that even when they dealt with, with mathematical thinking, they didn't think of it in terms of objectivity. And the very idea of of science and you know it took the the the, the whole in, enlightenment and the you know the the the, the uh, whole Comtean revolution or, or intellectual revolution of oh you know sci scientific empiricism and science and so on to to say okay well you know we, we look at things without intervening so that but but something that despite all human pretenses look at what we've done with the with genetics and uh, and um, uh, racial um, categories you know when we started when we the minute when we invented the idea of race the Caucasian the Negroid the, the, the whatever the mongoloid we 
all pretenses of objectivity were, were very quickly betrayed. I mean, if you study the history of, of racial, racial classifications, human beings have had the hardest time thinking systematically about, this is why, th think for a second, why could someone like Thomas Jefferson or the founding fathers talk about we the people, man and liberty, equal rights, while the institution of slavery was right there? This, because the concept of objectivity itself was not yet born into the modern age. It was still in the, in the process. It blows your mind if, again, if Muslim scholars did justice by their tradition, by their book, the fact that the Quran comes, and this is the only revealed book that does this, the only religious text in existence, and again, I defy anyone, the only religious text that does this, that comes and says, what Allah wants from you is that when it comes to moral values, what you have to aspire for is to be able to testify for justice even if it is against yourself or your loved ones. And that you're, you, you are doing it to bear witness, meaning that it's a testimony. And if it's a testimony, then the judge, God, will come and say, your, 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 your testimony was fair or unfair when you've witnessed, if you failed to live up to that standard, So, it is extremely significant that when Allah is alerting us, telling us about those before us, other religions, Allah doesn't tell us, now you are the chosen people, these people, are, all those people that came before you are losers, just forget about them. What Allah says is that your obligation is to be just, even the, impl the clear implication is that if you fail to witness for justice fairly, even if it is against yourself, then you in turn might be replaced. It's mind boggling. We just, we Muslims just don't take our, our revelation seriously. If you are a student of philosophy, if you are a student of history, if you are a student of knowledge, if you are a student of educational institutions, it blows your mind. This is being said at a, at a time where just, this is not the way people thought at all. And this is at a time where you are, you are possibly, I mean, listen, you are empowering 
if if a human being is 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 establishing state, right? You don't want to say in this country we will testify to justice even if it's against ourselves and mean it. Why? Because you are empowering minorities that might oppose you. You are empowering dissenters. You are empowering these Jews and Christians to come and say, well, you're not treating us fairly. Well, you talk about justice. Well, we're not receiving justice. That is why a human doesn't speak that way. And when you read the dynamics of the Sunnah, you find that indeed, indeed, this is precisely what happened. In situation after situation, those who were not part of the Muslim community were, if they were treated unfairly, they felt empowered and entitled. And they would come and say, where is justice? And Muslims were duty-bound to, whether they were successful in discharging justice or not, that's not the issue, but they were, they, they could not ignore justice without the, the, the devastating ideological blow of having ignored the Quran. If we wrote our own history, all of these things would be very obvious, but we don't. So what is obvious is completely ignored. Then notice, إِنْ يَكُنْ غَنِيًّا أَوْ فَقِيرًا فَاللَّهُ أَوْلَى بِهُمَا So, now, core to this, Allah knows that most of the injustice that you guys commit is because of class. Because you favor the rich and disfavor the poor. Remarkably, in all the Muslims who, who, who wrote about Marxism, I, I, I haven't read a single Muslim who points to, the, to what is really obvious, that Allah comes and says, you must aggressively pursue justice and notice that things go south when there is a differentiation between rich and poor. And if you fail, if you have different standards of justice for the rich and the poor, this is ittiba' al-hawa. فَلَا تَتَّبِعُ الْهَوَى أَن تَعْدِلُوا Now, Don't follow your whims, i.e. don't follow what human beings always do to favor a class, favor a religious group, favor an economic group. That is a tiba' al-hawa. And that, if, if that is the way you digress from justice, then know that Allah sees all and knows all. There is a riwayah uh, on Ibn Jarir that a rich man and a poor man um, um, 
argued before the prophet. They they were they had a, a dispute, an economic dispute. I don't remember what the economic dispute was about. But that um but that the Prophet automatically inclined towards the poor man. And that it's a rawaya gariba. I mean, it is it is classified as uh, as a hadith gharib, but it, uh, that the Prophet ﷺ inclined towards the poor man, and it's, it's some it's some it is sometimes asserted as an occasion for revelation, sometimes just asserted as a as a a narrative, not an occasion for revelation, but just a narrative mentioned. Um, I, I don't think it was an occasion for revelation, and I think the entire way is suspect. I mean, clearly, it, it, it follows a motif, and, that, and, and a motif that is often used anecdotally to teach justice, is that if you uphold justice, you don't even follow, you are not even prejudiced, even if it is in, fair, in, in favor of poor people. So you're, you're, you're diligent in assessing and thinking through justice without emotional biases for rich or for poor. That is the point. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it is mentioned in, I mean, and a lot of sources to, to mention it and then say, Allahu Alam, if, if it's authentic or not. But anyway, okay. So, uh, so now, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, aminu billah wa rasulihi, wal kitabi alladhi nazzala ala rasulihi, wal kitabi alladhi anzala min qabl, وَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَقَدْ ضَلَّ ضَلَالًا بَعِيدًا إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا ثُمَّ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا ثُمَّ ازْدَادُوا كُفْرًا لَمْ يَكُنِ اللَّهُ لِيَغْفِرَ لَهُمْ وَلَا لِيَهْدِيهِمْ سَبِيلًا بَشِّرْ الْمُنَافِقِينَ بِأَنَّ لَهُمْ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا الذين يتخذون الكافرين أولياء من دون المؤمنين يبتغون عندهم العزة فإن العزة لله جميعا. So let's take first uh, 136 and 137. See Muhammad, as a interest of time. So, يا أيها الذين آمنوا believers. Hold fast unto your belief in God and God's apostle and in the divine writ which God has bestowed from on high upon God's apostle step by step as well as in the revelation which God sent down aforetime. So the revelation before. For he who denies God and God's angels and God's revelations and God's apostles and the last day has indeed gone astray. 
Behold, as for those who come to believe, and then deny the truth, and again come to believe, and again deny the truth, and thereafter grow stubborn in their denial of the truth, God will not forgive them, nor will God guide them in any way. And then it, it, it gets more specifically about hypocrites. So let's, let's just take it a step at a time. So that link that it is, it, it is like an integral whole package testifying for God, pursuing justice, vigilance in justice, which if you want to summarize the, all the, the, the laws that Surah An-Nisa has spoken about to, um, to this point is like saying towards justice. It is not a fulfillment of justice, but it is towards justice. It is a move towards justice. So Allah said, but it's as if Allah is saying, okay, well, indeed Allah is saying that this, the belief in Allah and the belief in Allah's angels and the belief in Allah's prophets and the belief in the divine writ or and the belief in the revelations that came before you it is all about precisely that this is the heart of all of it so inna alladhina amanu thumma kafaru thumma amanu there are several reports that that claim to be an occasion for revelation, but I, I think, um, well, I'll, I'll get to it in a second. So, here we will notice that the Quran is going to talk about a category of people who because of because of their bias towards their own ego towards their own self-interest they are muzabzabin. They are keep going back and forth. Who are these people? Well, as we will see, Surah An-Nisa will tell us something that whether you call them munafiqeen or call them they're, they're technically Muslim as illegal as a matter of legal identification. But as far as Allah is concerned, there's in effect, there's a hypocrisy that is equivalent to kufr and sometimes even 
worse than kufr. Who are these people? What is their problem? They, there is something in them, there's enough in them still that tells them you should believe. But they don't want believe to cost them anything. And so they say we believe, but then comes the challenge of putting your money where your mouth is, putting meaning here, putting your, your witnessing where your mouth is, delivering on your belief, and they retreat. So, as some of the narratives tell us that their retreat, some of them retreated by saying, oh my God, you, you mean now being Muslim is going to cost us that we share our property with these orphans and these kids that we've never gave anything to? Oh, now uh, you're emboldening our women as, as the, the migrants from Mecca complained about when they migrated to Medina is that their women got emboldened. The, the famous narrative from Omar ibn Khattab that says, you know, when we were in Mecca, we controlled our women, but in Medina, women controlled their men, right? So some of them, as some narrative saws, picked up and went to Mecca. But once they went back to Mecca, they were ostracized by the relatives that said, what, what is, you know, what is this? You're, you're, you're an embarrassment when you are told that you must live up to the demands of justice. That is your solution is to basically, you know, uh, avoid the issue by going and pretending you're good Muslims in Mecca. Some reports tell us about that, and that some of them, in fact, pick up and go to back to Medina. But here's the thing. <laughs> when they go back to Medina, they think that they've done the Prophet ﷺ a favor. So they come back, now they come back and say, huh, okay, you see, we picked up to Mecca. We've come back. Now we're going to support you, but you can't be really serious about all these things you're telling us we have to do, can you? The implication is, okay, so if you really mean it, we're going to pick up and leave again. And lo and behold, of course, the Prophet said, no, I'm dead serious. Really? You're dead serious? Okay, we're leaving again. And they picked up and went back to Mecca. But once they went back to Mecca, it, it, it got to be personal. It got like, you know, we, we left and then we went back and we offered our support and we said we're going to support him and he still didn't appreciate us. And they became more obstinate and more arrogant. Other narratives tell us no. And I think both are true. I don't think it's either or. Some 
didn't leave to Medina, didn't leave to Mecca at all, or, or anywhere around the area of Mecca. But they initially, first they resisted. Then they told either the Prophet ﷺ or Ali ibn Abi Talib or Abu Bakr that, okay, no, no, we, we've got it. Okay, and this is after a certain amount of ostracism, a certain amount of social pressure. Okay, we, we so we can't be good Muslims unless we give orphans their rights, unless we take care of the poor, unless we liberate women who are oppressed, uh, who the, the women that we've been holding on to and refusing to, to, to let go of because we want their money, etc., etc. But then within the span of the revelation of Surah An-Nisa, when the Sahaba would say, the, the Prophet would continue receiving complaints that they, they haven't delivered the rights yet. So when the Sahaba would go and say, what happened to your promise? Well, when we really looked at it, it's not really possible. You don't understand. We went, we back, went and looked back. It is very, you know, the money of this orphan, you know, when we went back and looked at it, it's gone. Nothing remains of this money. Allah knows they're lying. Or this woman, oh, this woman, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I know that we, we've been holding her, not allowing her to get married for, married for the past 10 years. But you know what? When we went back, we tried to find her husband. No one wants to marry her. Allah knows they're lying. And Allah describes them as is dadu kufra that their conscience came to life for a short period of time but ultimately when it came time to delivering they answered the call of shaitan not the call of allah and allah says allah knows who you are and if you think allah doesn't see that you are that you are effectively negotiating with Allah's message. You think you can carve out the parts of Allah's moral project the way you want it to be. So instead of bearing witness against yourself, you're telling Allah, "Well, justice is whatever I want. Forget it. It's not going to work." And that is why right after it, right after it, it says, Bashir alima. Tell them, tell these hypocrites, what awaits them is absolute failure of the test. They haven't passed. Now, And we'll come back. We'll come back to this group because Surah An-Nisa has one other thing to say about this group in a second. Now, remember, I told you last halakha that these people, the the 
the resistance group. Many of them didn't want to go to Abdullah ibn Ubay because Abdullah ibn Ubay was, even his son knew him as the, the, the hypocrite. And even his son was embarrassed by his father. But as I told you last halqa, where they would go for, for, uh, um, where they would go for um, support, was to Ahli Kitab, often to Christians and Jews, who are more than happy. In part, there's a group of them because not all of them. Some some of them, as I said went back all, to, all together to Mecca and told the Prophet, oh, we're, we're Muslim, and but we, we don't agree with all this you know, reform, so we're just going back. Both of these groups, both of these groups, sort of, Allah sort of exposes them, lays them, they're not testifying against themselves, but Allah will testify against them because what is it that they are ultimately about? Uh, this is 139, so I want to see it like how Muhammad Asad translates it. It says, As for those who take deniers of truth for their allies in preference to believers, do they hope to be honored by them? Behold, all honor belongs to God alone. The reason I went to the translation is Al-Izza. Muhammad Asad is, is correct, and I suspect he's read the same reports because since he picked the word honor but ayabtuna indahumul izza inna fa inna al izza lillahi jami'a that what you izza here is your ego but al izza when Izza is with Allah, it is not egoism, it is dignity and honor. When it is without Allah, then it is arrogance and egoism. That's the, 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 the nature of... So when Allah Aziz, it's the same word, right? If you say Aziz here, then the connotation becomes negative because Izza is it is being embedded in the divine. It's what tempers pride to be become dignity instead of arrogance. Now, so Allah is, is, is exposing them, testifying to them against themselves by telling them, what you are about, what you are ultimately doing is that you are about your own pride 
And by going and whether you go and you escape to the kuffar in Mecca or you go and you sit with the with uh, uh, Christians and Jews and go along with them in mocking the laws of of Islam or in poking fun at the reforms and talking about how atrocious it is, how shocking it is that this man Muhammad is empowering orphans and empowering women and empowering men who are too weak to fight asthmatic men and men with health problems or men who are, you know, some of them had suffered from, um, I don't know, what do you call that in English, where like you have bowed legs, like your legs suffered from a bone deficiency, so they're, they're like bowed. Well, these men, this is at a time when there was no, obviously no treatment for them. And men like that were, were, were considered non-fighting. Like these men were, the most they would do in warfare is carry water. But they were always denied inheritance shares because the fact that they had that physical defect, leave alone if, God forbid, you know, you're, you're actually blind or you suffered from a disease that made you uh, crippled or if you an arm didn't develop or you know something like that but even the the what seemed to that type of illness of 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 these bowed legs uh, from from what we read in the tradition there seemed to be quite a few of these people around who would be and it was a scandal like how could we allow these people to inherit when they perform no useful function at war other than carrying water for them, it, for us, it's like, well, what, really, what's a big deal? But no, for them, it was scandalous. It was embarrassing to, to endow people like that with property. So Allah comes and says, for, you know, your problem is that you think your attitude towards your pride, your dignity, is fundamentally flawed. You think you can find honor in a paradigm other than this moral paradigm that Allah, well, you want to understand real honor? Real honor is what Allah teaches you. Real honor is justice. Real honor is to testify against yourself when you are unjust, is to admit your wrongs. Real honor is to testify against your parents if need be. It is a complete shift in the framework of honor. Arabs who thought that real honor is that if someone kills your cousin, you go kill, you know, three of their cousins. That was the Arab sense of honor. You're coming to them and saying, I am not just revolutionizing your sense of honor, but I am telling you that that sense of honor that I am teaching you with the honor that was taught all along to the prophets of all the gods, regardless of what Christians and Jews are telling you. Because Allah knew that Christians and Jews were sitting there telling them the stuff that Muhammad is saying is crazy. No one ever thought of it before. And Allah's coming and saying, they're lying. 
This was the law of Moses, the law of Jesus, the law of Ibrahim all along. This was Allah's message all along. Okay. Here, notice 140. Well, I, I actually forgot one thing. Um, 136, if you go back to 136 for a second, there is a report that, again, I, I have... I mean, I, 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 it's probably occurred historically, but as an occasion for revelation, there are like 10 different reasons why it cannot be, or it, it's not. The report says that, uh, that a group of Jews went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, um, we are willing to believe in, what we're willing to believe in is in Moses and the Torah. And we are even willing to believe in your book, the Quran, and you as a prophet, but nothing else. Meaning, what? We don't want to believe in Jesus as a prophet. Jesus was a false messiah. And that 136 was revealed to tell them I'm not at all, it wouldn't be at all surprised if, if that was one of the many proposals that the Prophet ﷺ received, especially that the Karaite Jews, especially that there were a lot of proposals that from Jewish tribes that were insincere, we're like, well, we're we're gonna acknowledge you as sort of a a you are de facto de facto truth, but not de jure. Sort of like we, you're a truth in fact, but not a truth in truth. Which which is, I mean, but as an occasion for revelation, you need more evidence that clearly associates the revelation with a narrative. Uh, not just finds parallels that sort of does this process of matching that we often see in these types of claims. Anyway, just for the sake of completion, I thought I should mention it. Okay. Um, now, 140, notice. And إِذَا سَمِعْتُمْ آيَاتِ اللَّهِ يُكْفَرُ بِهَا وَيُسْتَهْزَأُ بِهَا فَلَا تَقْعُدُوا مَعْهُمْ حَتَّى يَخُوضُوا فِي حَدِيثٍ غَيْرِهِ إِنَّكُمْ إِذًا مِثْلُهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ جَامِعُ الْمُنَافِقِينَ وَالْكَافِرِينَ فِي جَهَنَّمَ جَمِيعًا Remember I told you that the Quran comes and says you know often the, the, the hypocrites and the kuffar you know, who's worse? It's not clear. And they're often, so, and you notice here that at the end of 140, first let me read the translation. And indeed, God has enjoined upon you in the divine writ that whenever you hear people deny the truth of God's messages and mock them, 
you shall avoid their company until they begin to talk of other things, or else verily you will become like them. Behold, together with those who deny the truth, God will gather in hell the hypocrites, who but wait to see what betides you. Uh, and then it goes on. Uh, if it's not clear from Muhammad Asad's translation that Allah said that Allah will gather the hypocrites and the kuffar together in Jahannam. Sort of like there, there are each there are each other's company in hellfire. Here I should mention, you know, who someone that the, the work of, I I only recently discovered the work of Hassan Farhan and Malki. Um, but once I read. And this was just a few months ago, I mean, a couple of months ago at most. But once I read what he said about this ayah, uh, uh, I, I can't get it out of my mind. But it is, it is again, I often feel like Hassan Farhan Maki in many ways sort of was a twin, um, someone I've never met, and, and to my shame didn't even know about. But that one the the many reports that we have and again if you, if you want to get into the the the, the Hassan Marki does a really good job of putting these reports together the many reports that we have that those dissenters of various degrees and levels because some of them were truly muzabzabin truly would rise to the level of munafiqun. Others were at risk of becoming hypocrites, but it, it's clear that you know there there's still hope for them. But as I said, that they would go and they wanted validation. So who would validate them? Well, it was often either dissenters like them or people who are not Muslim. But then these conversations that would start out as, can you believe this is what we're asked to do, quickly deteriorated into making fun, not just of the Prophet but of the Quranic revelation. Now, the, what Hazrat Farhan Malki points out, which I think he's absolutely right about, is that you would think that, again, taking where Muslims were and where Muslims even are today, that Allah would just simply say, you know, those who sit and listen to God's words being mocked, you know, they're not better than absolute garbage. But look at the the nuance of what it says. That if you are there and you hear God's words being mocked, 
God doesn't prohibit them from socializing. God says, if you don't want to be hypocrites and you don't want to be kuffar, don't sit with them until they change the subject. Because if you indulge in this type of talk, then you are like them. This discernment is becoming of a text that tells you bear witness to justice or bear witness to Allah in pursuit of justice even if it is against yourself. So even when it teaches you to deal with the other, it's very nuanced. And right in the heart of battle days of Mecca, if you are sitting with them and they start making fun, that's a red line. Allah doesn't condemn them for sitting with them. And this is one of the things that, I mean, I I wasn't, it's like, it's always... I have to say that I, I myself, I, I, just from my upbringing, I, I was resistant to it. More, my own biases, my own asabiyya, the way I was raised, resisted the idea of, of course, if someone is, my, is making fun of, of, of God's words, and what you do is that you, you, you beat them up, if not kill them. But the idea that justice is far more discernment, discerning than that, and far more nuanced, and that because my my uh, my issue with with this revelation, I mean, I, I I hate to put it this way because it's not polite, but was that how could God tell them? Don't sit with them until they change the subject. Why didn't God tell them, go and just, you know, beat them up? This is how we're accustomed, like, as modern Muslims. This is, as I, some of you know, that when I was a teenager, we used to find Americanized kids, and we would go try to uh, create, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? We tried to trap them, and the American, the, the kids who went to the, the 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 clubs of the rich people that you know everything was it was American, and we knew that they danced disco and listened to Western music and wore jeans and stuff like that. We would you know try to create traps for them and 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 beat them up, you know, and it took a lot of maturity to listen to the Quran. Because say you don't have a right to beat them up, you know, just because they're they're this Quranic Islam is mind-boggling. The morality of Quranic Islam is mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah. You negotiate. Even in this situation where you are talking to people who are, who are potential dissenters, who are potential troublemakers, who instead of hanging around with the likes of Ali bin Abi Talib and 
Umar ibn al-Khattab and Abu Bakr, they go and hang around Christians and Jews at the time that the Prophet is alive, in their midst, alayhi salatu wasalam, which is, you know, again, to our mind, is like crazy. You have a choice to, to, to hang around the Sahaba and the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, and you're going and sitting with people that could potentially mock the Quran. And yet the Quran comes and says, all it says, don't sit with them until they, because if you do indulge, cross that red line, then munafiqeen and kuffar, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make a difference. Both of you are heading in the same remarkable discernment and, and, um, what is it, sophistication. Okay, so we're going to break, uh, we're going, yeah, well, okay, we'll, we'll continue with 141. We're going to break for Maghrib and then we'll, inshallah, we'll continue. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Sharif showed me this book. It's called Objectivity. We're just talking about history. Of course, I mean, objectivity is a, is a very common theme in philosophy, but it's, it's, uh, this is an, an actual study written about objectivity, but I just immediately noticed, just flipping through it, not surprisingly, under the, the chapter under structural objectivity, what even God could not say. Um, and I, I, I can predict what type of argument he's going to make under what even a God could not say, which is the usually the typical, uh, you know, history is always written from a very Western-centric perspective, as if, and so anything beyond what the West experienced is never integrated in any way. And, um, you know, the, the usual argument about Newton and, and uh, that um, the concept of objectivity was basically only born after human beings overcame religion and um, that, yeah, I mean, the, the, the usual is history of philosophy that looks at objectivity as basically a product of the Western Enlightenment. Uh, interesting, anyway. What time is it? You you guys can can turn off the mic on me if you. Yeah. Okay. So, 
الذين تربصون بكم فإن كان لكم فتح من الله قالوا ألم نكن معكم وإن كان للكافرين نصيب قالوا ألم نستحوذ عليكم ونمنعكم من المؤمنين من المؤمنين فالله يحكم بينكم يوم القيامة ولا يجعل الله للكافرين على المؤمنين سبيلا إن المنافقين يخادعون الله وهو خادعهم وإذا قاموا إلى الصلاة قاموا كسالا يراؤون الناس ولا يذكرون الله إلا قليلا مذبذبين بين ذلك لا إلى هؤلاء ولا إلى هؤلاء ومن يضلل الله فلن تجد له سبيلا يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تتخذوا الكافرين أولياء من دون المؤمنين أتريدون أن تجعلوا لله عليكم سلطانا مبينا إن المنافقين في الدرك الأسفل من النار ولن تجد لهم نصيرا So 141 Behold together with those who deny the truth God will gather and hell the hypocrites So this is 140 right Uh, who but wait to see what betides you. Thus, if triumph comes to you from God, they say, were we not on your side? Whereas, if those who deny the truth <clears throat> are in luck, they say to them, have we not earned your affection by defending you against those believers? But God will judge between you all on the day of resurrection. And never will God allow those who deny the truth to harm the believers. Behold, the hypocrites seek to deceive God, but while it is He, but while it is God who causes them to be deceived by themselves. And when they rise to pray, they rise reluctantly, only to be seen and praised by men, remembering God but seldom wavering between this and that true neither to these nor the, nor to those but for him whom god lets go astray thou canst never find any way <clears throat> so again 141 bikum this describes a historical incidental, meaning a historical reality, is that while, you know, there is a, a wide variety of characteristics or a wide variety of types with the, under the general rubric of the hypocrites. But the same individuals that had increasingly, first, and, and when you trace many of the, the key figures that, um, uh, that we suspect there are some that the, that clearly we know were were, were considered by 
the, the Prophet and, and his close companions as amongst the hypocrites. But there are individuals who have the, the following sort of um, uh, um, track record. They had either converted shortly after the Prophet came to Medina or converted a year or two either after Badr, especially after Badr, um, and we we don't hear anything about them until the Surat al-Anfal and Surat al-Nisa. So they tended to be the, the same figures that had a problem with the changing, the, the Islamic change in the law of spoils of war. So they were unhappy with the way that the spoils of war would go to the treasury and then would be but things got exasperated further with the laws of inheritance, laws of marriage, and the increasing demands that you you have to put your money where where your beliefs are. And so in the same way that these folks would seek validation with the parties most likely to validate their protests. What is, and here, I mean, the, uh, uh, the, the reason I'm hedging a little bit is that I, you, we, we have narratives about key individuals, but this must have, this description must have applied to far more than the two or three people that we have narratives about. And, and again, th this is something, inshallah, for the seerah, if, if, we, if we ever do that project, th th then we can talk about, you know, get to know who these people are in detail and all of that. But anyway, that they would, the way they, they, they do you know the type of person who thinks they're so smart, but they have sort of like, um, they're driven by a compulsion to win favor with non-Muslims. So in many ways, it's two-faced behavior, right? If things go well for, for Muslims, in, mostly in battle, then they're there for the celebration. They're, they're there congratulating and shaking hands and saying Allahu Akbar and Alhamdulillah. But if there is sorrow because things didn't go well, they're not there consoling other Muslims. You would find them rushing to non-Muslims 
sort of laying their stakes in case Muslims are on their way out. So they start, and here's the very subtle point, and the, the beauty of the way that the Quran just simply flags the issue that is a, is, a, is, a, is a rather sophisticated social dynamic because what they're doing is that they go and they say not that they necessarily side with the enemy that is the cause of misfortune for Muslims, but they go and they, in the way they talk to non-Muslims, they are reminding non-Muslims of their role as an ambassador, from their perspective, an ambassador of goodwill between Muslims and them. So they, they, and they tell the, these, they're not talking to the Jews and Christians who are responsible for a defeat or, a, or things going wrong in battle, but they're talking to Jews and Christians who do not celebrate Muslim victories and who celebrate Muslim defeats. And instead of being hand in hand with Muslims in their misfortunes, what they're worried about is how the future is going to look for them. So what they go and do is that they, 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 they rush in case now Muslims are on their way out, so they start reminding Jewish parties, mostly all the reports actually have to do with Jewish parties. If, if there was, if it was done with Christians, I, I don't know, it's possible. Anyway, is that they would tell them, uh, just remember all the ways that we facilitate or we play a positive role for you in being officially Muslim, but constantly in communications with you. It's a, if you, again, the Quran teaches through metaphors and anecdotes. If you look at this anecdotally, you can think of plenty of people who are slimy and sleazy like that. There, there, it's, it's, you know, sadly, there is a, I mean, I'll just talk about the culture that I know, know all too well. There are a type of people from my culture, from Egyptian culture, Arab culture, who, and this, I, I remember this for, it's, it's just during the invasion of Iraq, or they, they might be in Islamic spaces, speak, give the impression that they're with you about imperialism and the evils of imperialism and colonialism and so on. And then when I encounter them in events involving Western dignitaries, so in an event involving a meeting with members of Congress or involving the State Department or involving the FBI or involving 
the White House or uh, congressmen or etc. And they are slimy. I mean, they, they, they're, they're, okay, I'll give, I won't name that person because he's well known. But we were, um, this was after the invasion of Iraq. And um, either after or, or shortly before, I don't remember exactly, but One one very well-known Muslim leader, who I have personally heard talk about, you know, colonialism and imperialism and so on. One went out of his way to he was the at the dinner. People had assigned seats. He went out of his way to switch his seat so he can be at the table where Paul Wolfowitz was. Uh, who was a hawkish, uh, one of the hawkish advisors to the Bush administration, um, to to sit at his table. And it was clear that the reason he wanted to sit at his table was to sort of drop in all the reasons of how he can be very helpful in the post whatever the post-Iraq invasion period, all the ways that he can advise the U.S. government, that he can be. And in that context, I remember that what's his name was saying something, it's got Paul Wolfowitz, I think it was, his name was Paul Wolfowitz, I might be misremembering the name, but it was, Rumsfeld was there and a few others of, and they started talking about the Iraqi legal system and how they want to, so this must have been shortly before the invasion because they were talking at that point about how they want to, to abolish, to, to basically cancel the Iraqi army. And they wanted to do the same with the Iraqi legal system. And so a couple of us, did what should have done and reminded these idiots of the follies of colonialism and how colonialism would come in and destroy indigenous cultures only to replace what they replace it with was absolute chaos. And this guy just basically made jokes and just ingratiated himself to, these are the, you know, it's not that they are, it's not that you can point the finger to them and say, you're clear enemies, but they're slimy. They they lack principle. They're neither here nor there. They're, They're always, straddling defense, seeing where what is most advantageous for them personally, because their ultimate investment is in themselves. Another thing that 
is notable here is notice with these people and although it is clear that the Prophet knew certain individuals by name and depending on, on, on your theological perspective either knew all of who, all of them by name or some of them by name. I believe that he knew some of them by name, but not all of them. But some, if you read in Islamic sources, some Islamic sources tell you that the Prophet knew all of them by name. Um, notice what the Quran says. Allah doesn't tell you which is, again, it's for the time period that even in our modern age, even today, Allah doesn't say, go out and arrest them, execute them, punish them. All Allah says is, Allah will judge. Allah knows that when you confront these people, they say, what are you talking about? We are with you. We, uh, you, you know, it, it just, we weren't around after this incident or that incident because we were so sad that all these people were martyred. It breaks our heart. We were too depressed to be with you. Oh, yeah, but you went and met with X, Y. Yeah, because, you know, we were talking about, so, you know, the endless argumentation of the slimy. The slimy are capable of always arguing with you and all Allah says is Allah will judge between you in the hereafter. Which, again, in terms of the, the morality of tolerance, I don't know of, of you know, with all the, uh, the history of tolerance itself, I am not aware of a historical, even in the, the, the sort of what is considered by the West, the epitome of, of the history of tolerance, sort of uh, um, 18th, 19th century liberal thought. It never gets to this level where you are talking about potential enemies of the state and all you say is God is going to judge between you rather than empower you to persecute them. And this point that psychologically, it's like a lot of people, when it's like when the Prophet ﷺ tells us that when you commit a major sin or you commit a sin, you don't do it as a Muslim. In our worst moments, when we succumb to sin, we don't keep in mind that Allah sees us and is going to judge us, but we sort of get even if momentary amnesia about that fact. So we just don't want to think about it. And that enables us to go forward with the sin. Well, these people, they, they can argue with Muslims and sort of 
argue so that you can't, as they did, when because when they were confronted, they would say, "Oh, we were, you know, I was too overcome by grief to be uh, with you when this incident happened or that incident happened." Oh, so why were you at the same time that you know we were mourning the? this group that was sent to preach Islam to this tribe and the tribe betrayed them and killed, you know, the six Muslims and we were all sad. Instead, you were nowhere to be seen and we heard that you went and met with this Jewish tribe. Oh yeah, no, no, it is because we we just needed to wrap up some business. And so these were actually what would happen. And Allah points, the obvious point is that they think they're deceiving anyone. But Allah reminds them that like all immorality, like all failure of sincerity, the first victim of this lack of sincerity is you. You're not deceiving anyone but yourself. Because ultimately, no one is going to bear the consequences of your zabzaba, your, 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 the fact that you facilitate back and forth, other than yourself. And so they don't, don't deceive anyone but themselves. And that's what, And no. So further. وَإِذَا قَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ قَامُوا كُسَالًا So, prayer for them is a pain. It is, which tells us, as in fact we know from narratives, is that they, and we're not talking about praying at home, we're talking about praying jama'ah. Only Allah knows whether they prayed at home, but they knew that this is what the Muslim community did, is that they would get together for for the five prayers. And they couldn't, they didn't have the guts to not show up in prayer because that would be very noticeable. The size of the Muslim community at the time would make it very noticeable. But they did what, again, you see quite often, they show up after prayer had started. They show up in the last rakah. They would. That we have one narrative that I forgot the name of this guy, but he would show up. That he he would show, especially Fajr, right after the prayer had ended, and he would show up and always say, "Oh, it's over." Okay, then I'm going to pray at home. And then he would leave. He should have been born in our modern age. Forgot his name. Um, so, so why do they show up to prayer at all when prayer is such a pain for them? They do it because they have they, they, it all it is all about appearances and the truth of the matter the heart of the matter you want to know 
it's sort of the, the insignia, the sign of Imunafiq, is how often do you remember Allah? Remember we, we talked about last halaqah about how often, about remembering God as often as you remember your, your parent and what that means. That the, the ailment of nifaq is that Allah is often not present and Allah, when Allah is present, Allah is indistinguishable from the self. So Allah is present when it serves you for Allah to be present. So when, you know, you are, you, you're bringing up God in a way that has to do with validating you, uh, 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 serving some interest that has to do with the self. And ultimately, this, 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 Muzabzabina, the ailment in their heart is that in truth is that they're not hypocrites in the sense that they sit late at night conspiring against Muslims. They're hypocrites in the sense that they are dishonest with themselves. They have moments of faith. But ultimately, they're weak before their true God, and that's their own ego. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, la tattakhudu kafirina awliyaa min duni al-mu'minin. أتريدون أن تجعلوا لله عليكم سلطانا مبينا إن المنافقين في الدرك الأسفل من النار ولن تجد لهم نصيرا إيمان والكفر كفر are those who deny God those who deny God is not just whether they believe in God or not believe in God, but they deny God's sovereignty, deny God's morality. For me, and this is not just me, but many theologians have have said the same, you know, without putting labels on which, the types of theologians, because it's not necessary. But if you are denying a core value that is part of Sunnatullah fil Kaun, like Allah tells you, be observant of justice, bearing witness for God, and you come and say, not important not significant. Or Allah tells you or Allah 
affirms the principle of ihsan or the principle of taqwa or the principle of islah and you effectively void it erase it that is and this is why i suspect that muhammad asad consistently translates kuffar as um how does he put it um i think something like to the effect of deny god that same idea that that is denying god it is not just not believing in god but so and this is why it it comes it says that those who make such people their allies again in within the same framework is that they regardless of whether they say yes we believe in god regardless of whether they, this is illegal matter if, if you say take the shahada then legally you have gained citizenship in the muslim ummah but whether allah morally considers you a believer or not depends on your relationship with allah so this is for you to reflect upon are you truly a kafir or you are truly a mu'min a mu'min submits submission is not that you simply perform physical acts but you accept allah's project in creation so addressing the, the same problem of nifaq saying think about who do you tend to gravitate towards do you gravitate towards those who look at what allah is implementing with allah's living prophet and do you say this is unreasonable this is too much i i can't make these sacrifices or you are you on board because ultimately and and this is you know it it, it should make muslims shudder because ultimately the place of hypocrites is in the lowest rungs of hell what is allah saying that now you will find some very interesting writings as to why Allah and the best that I've read about this is that the reason hypocrites are in the lowest rungs of hell is because of lying they live a life of lies lying to themselves lying to God and that is quintessentially at odds with God's morality if God teaches you anything about the path of God about sunnatullah is al-haq right and perseverance with al-haq 
that it's you have to be truthful. You have to be truthful with yourself. You have to be truthful with others. You have to be truthful with God. The heart of nifaq is lack of transparency and lack of truth. And living oblivious to this fact makes you deserving of that status of being in the lower rungs of hell. Okay. So, where were we? Yeah, okay. 146 إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَابُوا وَأَصْلَحُوا وَأَعْتَصَمُوا بِاللَّهِ وَأَخْلَصُوا دِينَهُمْ لِلَّهِ فَأُولَئِكَ مَعَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَسَوْفَ يُؤْتِي اللَّهُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَجْرًا عَظِيمًا مَا يَفْعَلُ اللَّهُ بِعَذَابِكُمْ إِنْ شَكَرْتُمْ وَآمَنْتُمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ شَاكِرًا عَلِيمًا This 146 and 147 are self-explanatory. We don't need to posit them. That Allah is confronting you with, with it, it, it is not it, Allah is not out to get you but Allah Allah's sunnah Allah's philosophy if you will in existence is that you live morally honest lives okay Um, yeah, several theologians, commentators, although this usually occurs, you find this in books on theology and not tafsir. 146 that some said that after having delivered this dire warning to to those who uh, were the the, the the those who facilitated back and forth and the, the weak of faith and those who were dishonest and so on, that some of them reached the point of freaking out. I mean the. We have a report about at least one of them who realizes that this is talking, this is describing him, and says, "Well, okay, so I'm lost. You know, what hope?" And that they say that then, one forty-six comes and says, "If you repent, and you make the intention." to correct your path and make the intention to be sincere in your relationship with Allah, then Allah, in fact, will count you with the believers. In other words, it's not too late for you. And that this message of assurance 
that if you look within and you suspect that and hypocrisy is not an all or none it is degrees you know you see 1% hypocrisy within you you see 5% 10% 20% you know may god forbid you see 100% the point is not to freak out and to say, I'm doomed. The point is ikhlas and niyyah, to correct the path. And Allah lays it out, at-tawbah, to repent, and islah, to understand that your commitments have to be reflected in your actions. Your value system has to come from Allah, not from your tribe, your nation, your family, your culture, your tradition, your whatever. And that you at least work on the intention that you worship, that your relationship with your faith, with Islam, be based on sincerity and honesty. Okay. And then, in response, at least in, in response to those people, Allah points out the, the obvious to them and says, Allah is not out to get you. Allah is... is what... What do you think Allah gains from torturing you or punishing you? That is not at the point. So if you think that the doors of repentance have been closed, then you're being silly. Because this is not about making sure that you fail or you're punished. Okay. لا يحب الله الجهر بالسوء من القول إلا من ظلم وكان الله سميعا عليما إن تبدو خيرا أو تخفوه أو تعفو عن سوء فإن الله كان عفوا قديرا This is 148 There is a narrative that is often reported again as an occasion for revelation. There, there, are several, there are several narratives that all that claim to be occasions for revelations. That um, that a man was that the Prophet ﷺ was, was sitting with Abu Bakr when a man showed up and started insulting Abu Bakr. What insults he was saying exactly, we don't know. The, the historical record didn't preserve this for us. What is interesting about Medinian society is the number of times, although we, we've sanitized the, 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 the story of the Sahaba, 
But in reality, in truth, is that some of these dissenters, the, the munafiqun, the, the, the hypocrites, were very gruff. You know, some of them, the, the, the sleazy, slimy type that would smile in the face of Muslims and then go and create alliances and, and, and so on uh, with the other. But some did precisely like this man. They, they would actually go and start being nasty and rude because they were unhappy with, often because they were unhappy with what they were being required to do. Anyway, so this man starts insulting the the uh, start starts insulting anala min Abu Bakr. Anala min means that you know what it's a general term that could be various forms of of criticisms, insulting criticisms. Um, there are two versions of the narrative. One that says that Abu Bakr would, did not respond until he started to respond so the Prophet ﷺ got up at that point and left. Another version says that when the Prophet, when Abu Bakr looked like he was going to respond, the Prophet ﷺ told Abu Bakr, if you start responding, I will get up and leave. And when Abu Bakr asked the Prophet, both versions agree on this point, is that when Abu Bakr asked the Prophet, either why did you get up and leave or why were you going to get up and leave if I would have responded to the insults, that the Prophet says to Abu Bakr um, that as long as he was insulting you and you are not answering, there were angels who answered him back. But the minute you started reciprocating or the minute you thought of reciprocating, the angels would leave and shaitan would come. Now, Whether this, whether in fact there were angels, you know, because, you know, do we take from this that anytime you are insulted and you don't answer that angels come and respond? Well, you're not Abu Bakr. But the, the point, the anecdotal point is, is that if you degrade yourself if you relinquish Islamic morality, it's like, you know, when the, the attitude after 9-11 attacks, you couldn't talk to a, a Republican who was not, and in fact, unfortunately, both Republicans and Democrats, who didn't have this attitude of, well, we need to get down and dirty to fight the terrorists. And this was usually in the context of using torture. You know, we need to have black sites. We need to torture people. We need to deny people due process. Otherwise, we... But the Quranic morality, 
is that if your ethics, if you allow your ethics to be dictated by your foe, that is opening the door to the demonic. And, and that is why this is in the context of talking about nifaq and in the context of talking about the, the, the ethical project of empowerment. Some of you are so, okay, we want to empower. We have a good cause. We want to liberate people. Some of you are saying, why can't we, since our, our, our goals and our objectives are so worthy, why can't we go and arrest these people, exile these people, kill these people, imprison these people, basically the, the ones that are giving us a headache, the ones who withdrew in the Battle of Uhud, the ones who are complaining about paying their share of the war for the war effort, the ones who are complaining about having to donate anything, the ones who are complaining, etc., 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 and the the again the crux of the matter is your morality cannot be dictated by your opponent, but remember that in Surat An-Nisa. Earlier, Allah told us that a najwa, if if the najwa, if the if discourses are about causing um, strife and animosity and division, then there then there's no khair in it. There's no good in it. One of the questions, or some of the questions that came up, now, and again, whether, well, let me finish the thought, and then I'll come back to it. One of the questions that came up, okay, so wait, so does this mean that if I talk about how such and such a person refuse to give orphans their rights or or such and such a person has imprisoned a woman and rendered her a muallaqa is are we banned from talking about this is this haram to talk to basically speak about these the, what the offenses that people commit and the answer comes is that the issue, but notice how this is connected to bearing witness to justice, even if it is against yourself. The issue, have you suffered an injustice? And do your, does your airing or, or speaking of the evil that was done, is it to address an injustice? And here, again, it's a matter of conscience. Is it if, because you 
if you're honest with, with yourself, you know whether you in fact are addressing an injustice or whether you are just complaining and slandering. Ultimately, God is the one who's going to judge your sincerity. But it is, and that is why I always say that the Quran demands a heightened moral sense. Because if you can easily turn this into dicta, you can easily take this as basically giving you license to engage in any type of evil talk, all the evil talk you wish, because everything is an injustice against you. There are people who have a victim mentality, and they tend to think that, you know, people just commit injustices against them left and right. Well, all what Allah tells you is, well, if you are going to speak ill about anyone or anything, Think very carefully, because if it is not to address an injustice, then that's on you, not for you. Um, the other report um, is rather curious. I mean, it, I, again, I'm anyway, is that there is a man i forgot his name who goes to a tribe as a guest he's traveling right and in arab culture guests have to be honored and they have rights the being properly fed and um, welcomed is a right, the, the right of the Yafa. And that this man goes to a, a tribe and Lam Yukruh. Lam Yukruh means that they didn't give him his due as a guest. And, and he was so offended. He wanted, but he wanted to complain about it. But the issue that came up is whether complaining about not being given his due as a guest would be ghayba or righteous talk. Um, and that he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet says, that he can as long as he testifies honestly and accurately about what what he was not given, then he is within his right, but he cannot transgress, so he cannot exaggerate, that any exaggeration would be against him. Um, and it's an occasion for revelation. I, I, I definitely, I mean, the evidence that it is an occasion for revelation uh, is very weak, even weaker than the uh, Abu Bakr narrative. The Abu Bakr narrative is likely to have actually been a historical event that took, you know, that, that the, that, although it is, 
Abu Bakr later on in a very different circumstance um, answers an insult. We'll get to that story eventually, inshallah, but so I, I, it will take us to it. Anyway, it is it, the, the idea that Abu Bakr would be tempted to, to say enough is enough that uh, and, and is, is, is not surprising. But the idea that he started reciprocating insults and then that made the Prophet get up and leave is, is not very likely, just knowing Abu Bakr's personality. Um, but, you know, was that an occasion for revelation? Um, well, the context tells us that it was addressing a situation that was more nuanced than either of these reports. Because, look, in Tubdu Khayran, Aw Tukhfuh, Aw Ta'fu Ansu, Fa'inna Allah kan Afuwan Qadira. And that, so this is 149. The, the entire context gives us something more nuanced than either of these narratives. Is that so Allah comes and says when it comes to talking about complaining because and, and I should put this in context as I as already I think is obvious from things I said that that, that those who fall in the category of hypocrites they were consummate complainers. They're constantly complaining about how they are misunderstood, about how the Prophet is not considering their, their interests properly, about how it's unreasonable that they should make all these sacrifices. The, the thing that just strikes you about them is that they're just constantly complaining while, you know, you hardly find someone like Ali ibn Abi Talib complaining or Abu Bakr or, you know, the, the, the real Sahaba, you, rare, you rarely find them. And when they complain, it is something about that has to do with Islam, with the future of Muslims. Those who name occurs in the rosters of al-nifaq are constantly whining. And so the sophistry of argument, well, so are we not supposed to complain? And the answer is, well, have you really suffered an injustice? But think carefully before you call what you're complaining about an injustice. Because in, indeed, the standard is, and this is 149. Let's see how Muhammad translates this. 
whether you do good openly or in secret or pardon others for evil done unto you for behold God is indeed an absolver of sins infinite in God's power so in tubdu khayran aw tukhfuh aw ta'fu an su' fa inna Allah kana afuwan qadira that ultimately the standard is what do you do with what is your attitude towards goodness your charge is to multiply and manifest goodness and while it's like it's like flipping the way you're looking at the issue you know whether the, the glass is half full or half empty it's not an issue of well why can't I talk about why can't I complain the issue is why don't you talk enough about goodness about khair speaking about khair is habit forming like everything else it's my my brother and I often joke about my mother may Allah bless her soul that my mother whenever she would hear us um, backbiting or hear us say any impolite words she would always go with any with any she would cover cover her ears and she'd say my ears my ears and I honestly believe that her ears would hurt her I mean when I was younger I thought that she's just pretending when I got older I start my I started really suspecting that because it she wouldn't it, it she wouldn't miss a beat it I mean it's as if she had gotten herself so used to speaking khair and hearing khair that ill talk, I think, actually hurt her ears, would give her a headache or something. Because it just, you know, sometimes we didn't even notice that she can hear us and we would become aware of her when she, when she with that with and she's covering her ears and running away. Okay. So, and remember that that forgiving what what is not good that has befallen you is in itself a moral objective so it's like changing or reorienting your perspective and then in sort of Allah comes to the heart of the matter and says it's like Allah saying you know the problem with the because there the, the Prophet is often 
has those who are sincere in persevering in the past are often have a lot of questions about the not so small number because there are actually quite a few many who are arguing struggling insulting you know engaging in things that if you are truly sacrificing and giving your all you're looking at those others and saying what is wrong what is wrong with them right and it is natural that there would be a gulf that starts developing between those who are sacrificing everything and those who are stalling all the way. And as the Quran usually does, Allah comes and takes the bandaid off, the whole dynamic, and says, There are a people who want their attitude is they want to pick and choose as to what they believe in. But notice ultimately their rejection of the moral project is kufr billah wa rasuli. That it is, it is a kufr because you are n- not surrendering. If Islam is about Islam al wajdillah, then they are not surrendering. And you farriku. بين الله ورسله. Often, as I as I pointed to that dynamic, that they would go and they say, "Did you, you Jews? Did Moses ask you to to make? I mean, this Muhammad says that he is a, a, a the final prophet. Is this?" You didn't have to make these sacrifices, did you? So in other words, they, they are, it's like using Islamic logic to challenge Islamic logic. It's trying to argue with the prophet, it's like, you know, when you say, well, I, I someone teaches you a language and then you use that language to defy the person who taught you. And so the Quran say, well, okay, so you're the prophet of God, right? But Moses didn't require, the, and look, Jews themselves say they, they weren't required to make these types of sacrifices. Jesus didn't require his followers to make these types of sacrifices. So why are you demanding that we make these types of sacrifices? If you are weak of faith, it could be a compelling argument. And Allah comes and says, those are the the attitude of saying my relationship to Islam is that I pick and choose 
what fits me and what is agreeable with me is a no-go. And again, if you wanted, if it was a popularity context, if you had a siege mentality and you wanted to maximize adherence, this is not the way you would talk to them. You wouldn't tell them you can't pick and choose. It's either you're in or you're out. Because you know that if you say that, well, you don't have the money, you don't have the power, you don't have the prestige, you don't have anything. And the, the risk is extremely high that they'll say, okay, fine, we're out. This is the miracle of the Quran. A human doesn't talk this way. Um, there are narratives that says that 150, you'll, you'll find in commentaries that tell you 150 was revealed about Christians and Jews. And that Christians and Jews are the ones who were picking and choosing, and that it was not talking about hypocrites, it was talking about Christians and Jews. SubhanAllah, because I, I, you know that I've, this journey was done over a 10-year period and many years ago. But, so I had spent a considerable time researching this issue as, you know, those who people who said that this was revealed about Christians and Jews and not hypocrites. And long, just recently, when I read Hassan Farhan al-Marki, I could have saved myself hours of research if I knew about Hassan Farhan al-Malki and just read him because he ended up searching the same individuals in the same narrations and finding, as I did, that the problem with these narrations is that it fell within a genre of individuals associated with certain transmissions that tended to ascribe all morally introspective Quranic discourses to project them onto Christians and Jews rather than onto the Muslim community. And that the reason that they did this is because of a theologically misguided perspective that all the Sahaba had to appear, emerge um, beyond reproach. And so the idea that some of the people who converted at the time of the Prophet and who technically were companions as the idea of companions, Sahaba, emerges centuries later, or a century later, or a century and a half later, um, that, that it, 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 it would fall into the lap of 
Ansar Ali, the, 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 the pro-Ali group. And so they, they, every time they would find something in the Quran that, is, that we have plenty of evidence that it's talking about the inner dynamics of people who had converted and were within the technical definition of Sahaba, that they, they, they were serious moral and, and spiritual struggles. They would say, oh, no, it's talking about Christians and Jews. So, yeah. The power, of, I mean, when who amongst us in, wouldn't worry that, that, you know, I would be among those who believes in some parts and doesn't believe in some parts and wants to pick and choose according to my whim. And remember that this is like a, a moral calling. It's not a judgment. It is warning you so that you can reflect and you can cleanse your conscience. There are no ready-made answers. This is not a vending machine. What you can do is to make sure to the best of your ability that when you appear before God, you've done your due diligence. You've tried your darnest not to be among those who believes in some and rejects some depending on what your whim tells you to do. What time is it? It's 9.42. Well, I can I okay, inshallah, I have a very strong feeling that next halaqa will 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 finish surah an-nisa. I have a very strong feeling next halaqa will finish surah an-nisa and that not only that but I will summarize. I will give you the 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 entire you know global outlook of Surat al-Nisa. Uh, whether we'll have time for Q&A or not, I, I don't know. That's something else. But, I mean, we, we might have to do Q&A on another day. Um, but, so we officially finished at 149, 150. Um, okay. Alhamdulillah. Do uh, you want to come do the honors? Close the sessions? Or do we just turn off the mic, honey? Turn the mic off. Poor <laughs> thing. <laughs> you know, I I would I just didn't want Muslims to do it. You know, I just I just I I don't mind if someone does it to me, but for once I don't want it to be my Muslims. I just don't want it to be Muslims. Let me just explain why he keeps making references to like turning off the mic. So today, um, during his keynote, he was making his last point. We didn't realize he was over time, and the the organizers had sent us messages through the chat to say, you know, okay, you have five minutes, you have two minutes, whatever, whatever. So he's talking, and all of a sudden they shut off the mic. So they cut him off before he was able to make that. Instead of doing, you know, what would be polite is just to actually verbally come in and say, excuse me, professor, 
you know, we, we have the next event or the next, uh, you know, thing starting, so we just need you to close up. They just cut them off. <laughs> I've given a hundred <laughs> keynotes in my life. I, I mean, I can't even, I, I, we stopped listing them on the CV because they're just, I've never had anyone turn not the mic off on me. Yeah. Never. And it had to be Muslims. So, Muslim lawyers. <laughs> And it was an amazing lecture, so it was not a really nice way to end it. But um. I mean, and these are first-year law students, and you know, if if they were in my class, I would be yelling at them, and you know, giving them a very bad grade. But they're in a different law school, so <laughs> I have no jurisdiction over them. So. so it's okay. So we recorded it. I recorded it. We've already uploaded it, so you can watch the whole thing without the end being cut off. <laughs> so you get the full the full picture. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, so thank you so much for this incredible, incredible halakha as always. Um, and just, I guess, if, uh, some, some notes and highlights. Um, you know, again, that we have to, in order to understand justice, we have to understand the context. And so, you know, this is, again, so important because even like today in, in some of the sessions we were watching, um, there's just that uh, whole idea that, you know, to apply Islamic law, all you have to do is kind of pull out your thick book and, you know, pull out a sentence and apply it as opposed to actually understanding the complete picture of something and then actually creatively determining what would be just in this particular situation. So, um, and then the whole idea of following Quranic morality and the Sunnah of Allah and understanding that justice is embedded in creation itself. Um, again, reminding us that every word of the Quran matters um, and that oftentimes we pass over these moral injunctions. But when you demonstrate like what it, what it takes and feels like to actually take every word seriously and think it through, it's so powerful. Um, that uh, in marriage, the idea of compassion between partners, forgiveness and mercy in your heart that comes from God, that's a blessing from God that comes from following Allah's sunnah. Um, the idea, again, I'm just going to jump around, but things that just jumped out because we've already covered this, uh, so many of these things. Um, the, the idea that reconciliation is better, but that if you find, you know, for disempowered women who have no choice, that they shouldn't compromise their dignity for financial reasons. is such a, a beautiful idea. Um, that the, the Quran, you know, in... in referring back to stories of, of past revelations and past prophets that it's such a beautiful message that this is the same message as before this idea of a Quranic openness that wisdom is wisdom morality is morality you know ethical um, norms are ethical norms um, and so empowering um, that reminding the, us that success in the here and now and in the hereafter is with Allah and that all of this, um, all of these commandments for for follow, you know testifying, um, bearing witness against yourself and others and those you love, you know all of this is not for God but for you, um, and that ultimately God knows all. God will judge you on how well you um, bore witness and how fair and you know how how you did in upholding justice. Um, interestingly, again, that most of the injustice is due to classism. Um, which was really interesting, um, that dis whole discussion. Um, and I think overall, like, the, like, all of these stories are so important, even though we're hearing stories about what happened in a particular time with particular people, 
I mean, I, I understand these as really important definitions for our own self-reflection um, because these prototypes are so familiar. They're human prototypes, and we know people, and we even recognize ourselves in some of these attitudes. And so it's important for us to ask, you know, do we fall into this particular prototype? And the point you made about how hypocrisy is not black or white, but actually a matter of degrees. Um, and the beautiful... Um, the, the power of the, the Izzah the, with Allah versus the Izzah with your ego, like the idea that you know your power can come through your either dignity or if it's not with Allah, then it's really just giving into your ego. Um, the, the beautiful idea of the nuance in justice and the example of, you know, if you're talking with people and they start trashing, you know, God or the prophet or revelation that you should just leave, not kill them. But then if they change the topic <clears throat> that you can join it you know so and again the message is be careful who you hang out with because they can influence you um and just the, the nuance in that um and um that ultimately you know hypocrisy really is tied to how honest you are with yourself um if there's a lack of honesty a lack of transparency a lack of truth with yourselves and others and god um that that's what we really need to examine and that we should um be focused on living morally honest lives that Allah is not out to get you um, this is that if you you know don't freak out this is um, about understanding um, understanding you know the situation or what you're doing repenting correcting your path and making sure that your values come from Allah um, that you can't let your morality be dictated by your enemies so I mean that that very human tendency to you know if someone is treating you unjustly that you want to lash out but you know then that is, that's not the right way um, that you should not speak ill except for purposes of addressing injustice and the nuance in thinking about that because it's so easy to just fall into speaking ill or complaining or um, whining um, but to think in terms of flipping the flipping your attitude you know are am I adding to goodness as opposed to am I adding to you know the the speaking ill um, and that all of this is is a moral calling and a warning and that we should um, do our due diligence so I mean such an such an important again um, lessons for how to turn inward and make sure that we are growing and living by Allah's standard so Thank you so much for an amazing session. Inshallah, look forward to, um, inshallah, the conclusion um, of Surah Nisa, which would be amazing because it would then fall on the first day of Ramadan, as we understand oh, it, true. right? So that would be very beautiful. And um, yeah, so anyway, I, I think that is it. Thank you so much for being with us. Salaamu alaikum. Have a wonderful week. And inshallah, when we see you, it'll be Ramadan. It'll be amazing. Ramadan Mubarak, everyone. Ramadan Mubarak. Okay. Have a wonderful week. Salaamu alaikum.